Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, Governor Phil Murphy's reaction to the deadly mass shooting at an elementary school in Texas. You know, you got 90% of Americans support universal background checks, and yet they can't get anything done. I'll chat with two clinical psychologists as May is Mental Health Awareness Month. What I want to see and what I think is starting to happen, which I hope continues now, is for us not to forget about the people on the other end that had just as big of an impact, which is the older adults. Five-time Grammy Award-winning bassist Victor Wooten joins us to talk about his Jazz Night fundraising concert for the Institute of Music for Children. And so music is, doesn't have to deal with age, doesn't have to deal with race or culture, and kids definitely get it because they don't have a filter of how they're supposed to get it. And our film critic Harlan Jacobson is at the 75th Cannes Film Festival. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. A state colonel with the Texas Department of Public Safety is not happy. He says in hindsight it was the wrong decision to not enter the classroom sooner in Uvalde, Texas, where a gunman was located for more than an hour. Colonel Stephen McCraw says there were plenty of officers inside the school from the earliest minutes of the shootout, and as many as 19 officers from local and federal forces were in the hallway most of the time. The decision not to go in immediately was that of the incident commander on the scene, whom McCraw did not specifically name, but said it was the police chief of the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District Police Department. McCraw says it was the wrong decision, period. He says there was no excuse for that. Meanwhile, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy gave his thoughts on the school shooting during his appearance on WBGO's Ask Governor Murphy program, hosted by Nancy Solomon. It's unspeakable. God bless these precious little kids and the two teachers and several others, apparently, who are clinging to life and, and their families they leave behind, their classmates. It's just yet again. Um, so in New Jersey, we are we are blessed to have one of the strongest gun safety r- realities in America. That's something we should be proud of, but it can be it can be stronger. Uh, we've got the will of the people being separated by the gun lobby in Congress. You know, you got 90 percent of Americans support universal background checks, and yet they can't get anything done in Congress. Um, it's just, just awful, awful, awful. People ask me all the time, well, you've succeeded in passing, uh, in signing, rather, a fair amount of gun safety laws, and I'm proud of that. Indeed, we have. But we can be better. You take the steps that we want to take, like digitizing ammunition sales, safe storage, so you have to separate your weapon from the actual ammunition, make you, uh, like you would for driving a car, p- pass a test or take to in order to get your gun license um, bar 50 caliber weapons which by the way can shoot down a helicopter will all will all of that guarantee you you won't have a tragedy no but it improves your batting average uh, and and we need as much of that improvement as possible so tell me about your frustration with getting the package that you want passed and yeah. and and you surprised people by saying you want to see all the bills be Yeah, I do. Home. I do. I think this is a moment. Listen, we've got a great relationship with the legislative leadership. They're terrific. Uh we're working on the budget uh as we speak. Um but these bills and and by the way a bunch more. I've given you just some highlights. They've been out there for 13 months. And it's not like it's getting better. Now, you could say, well, in New Jersey, thank God we haven't had what we saw in Texas. Yes, that's true. All these bills would contribute to a safer New Jersey. 
but yes, I want to see them all up, uh, including the ones that the other side of the aisle mm-hmm. wants to see, which are, are some just ludicrous, uh, allowing hollow-tip bullets to be legal again, uh, allowing you to bring a weapon to places like church, among other things. Let's. I, 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 I think it's time the New Jersey residents of this state sees exactly where everybody stands right now on gun safety. You can hear the entire show tomorrow at 6 p.m. on WBGO 88.3 FM. You can also hear it on the WBGO Facebook page. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we have two doctors from New Jersey-based Baker Street Behavioral Health joining us here on the WBGO Journal. Dr. Joseph Galasso, who is a clinical psychologist and CEO of Baker Street Behavioral Health. Great to see you again, Dr. Joe. You as well, Doug. Thanks for having us. We had Dr. Joe on my Sports Jam podcast where we talked about the mental health awareness night for the Metropolitan Riveters. And you might notice my backdrop today and happens to be two of the jerseys worn that night. Happened to win them in the auction. That's how passionate I am about being involved in trying to get the word out about mental health awareness. And that is Madison Packer and Brooke Avery's jerseys behind me. We're also joined by Dr. Carrie Ditzel, who's a clinical psychologist. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. She's also with Baker Street Behavioral Health and can really address some of the issues that are not going on because of what we went through with COVID and how that's impacted our mental health, but also older adults, how they're being impacted. So Dr. Galasso, let's first talk about the impact of mental health. It seems to me that through commercials and through special nights like the Riveters had, that more and more people are finally at least talking about mental health issues in public. Is that the case? Uh, that's right on, Doug. What, what we're seeing right now is, is really unprecedented for us in the mental health world, uh, just in, insofar as our ability to outreach and speak openly about what's going on in uh, the mental health community. Uh, so it's really a wonderful time uh, for us right now. It's also a very frightening time when you look at statistics. A growing percentage of youth in the U.S. are living with major depression, with more than 15% experiencing a major depressive episode in just the past year. And we've heard about teen suicide and how that seems to be going up and Everyone's impacted by this, Dr. Galasso. What are we trying to do to prevent mental health from overtaking us, especially at the teen level? Well, first and foremost, like we talked about in our last meeting, is just talking about the fact that reaching out for help is not problematic, right? Erasing that stigma, erasing the, uh, the invisible issues that we've had in the past, with outreaching service providers such as myself talking about mental health within our family units, within our schools, within our communities, that's the most important first step. And, and that those conversations are happening more readily. So that, that needs to be applauded um, and that needs to be recognized. And uh, secondly, what's happening is we're, we're really making access to care more accessible throughout our country. Um, so access to therapists, to psychiatrists, um, even to pediatricians um, and, and our frontline providers, you know, our medical providers who are children or adolescents see first, we're giving them the education to spot these things sooner, which is really very, very important. Dr. Ditzel, we're not only talking about young people being impacted by 
mental health issues. During COVID, it has been such a stressful time for older adults, everyone in general, but you have seen many older adults go through depressive stages and when it came to losing loved ones or being worried about others. What have you noticed as we go to a couple years now into this pandemic? What kind of trends are you seeing as far as gains in, in mental health awareness? Well, what I'm seeing and what I'm hoping to see is that what Dr. Galasso just talked about in terms of conversations happening within family units and education to medical providers to look for things in our younger kids, which had a pretty blaring impact, schools closed, social situations shut down. It was pretty much in our face. So it's a, it's a population, it's a cohort of, of people that we all knew we would need to give attention to. What I want to see and what I think is starting to happen, which I hope continues now, is for us not to forget about the people on the other end that had just as big of an impact, which is the older adults. So these are individuals that maybe were retired, were living kind of quiet lives with a few activities that just shut down because from the medical perspective, they might have been more vulnerable so they didn't take as many chances. They're still not taking as many chances. And because of age effects, they may have been more susceptible to losing significant others. So many people of all ages lost loved ones. So I'm not discrediting that. But older adults, because they were already older and maybe sick, maybe lost more people. So as a group, there's some more vulnerabilities. And now as we sort of go back to life and, and reinvent our lives now, considering COVID, um, I think there's some challenges for older adults because there's not that ready-made, okay, I'm going back to the office and going back to work and that gets me out in the world. So we have to pay attention to them and we have to help them access care, look for signs of symptoms of mental illness and not just, you know, the blues or difficulties readjusting or reacclimating. And the education with the medical providers is extremely important because those are the first people that they're going to present to. And then accessing care after that, the mental health care, which is, of course, what we're here for. Dr. Dissel, can you take us into, I guess nothing's ever a typical session, but as a clinical psychologist, somebody comes in and has some concerns. How does that conversation go? You mean with an older adult as opposed yes. to another? Mm -hmm. Not that differently, to be honest with you. You know, this is the stigma that I want to take away just because you're whatever number we pick, whatever you consider older adult, it doesn't make you less likely and um, less able to benefit from talking and talking about how you're feeling. So I'll be honest, it's not all that different. I start by saying, what's going on? What brought you here? How are you feeling? And older adults can tell you, they can tell you better than other people. <laughs> so it's about starting that conversation with that group of people, not being afraid to. So those of us in this middle-aged kind of life that are getting back to games and work and all of that, you know, start having that conversation. I bet you it's going to be an easy one to have, and they're going to let you know if they need help. And so for me, the sessions are not all that different. I might talk a little bit more about medical problems than a typical middle-aged person. And we might consider those things. We might talk about the change and the role transitions that they've gone through. Um, but I'll tell you what I like about working with older adults is 
they know what they're good at. They know their strengths. They've been through things. So I very easily say, well, have you been through something like this before? And it's usually a yes. Well, what did you do then? How did you get through it? And you build off of that. You build off of the strengths that are already there. So you have a lifetime of experience to go with, which gives me an advantage, to be honest. When we're talking to loved ones or our kids, or no, no matter what age, bring the subject up. We're not all experts like both of you are when it comes to this topic. So how do we handle that, Dr. Galasso? How do we give them the encouragement they need and the advice they need, but also direct them in the right places to go? The best thing you could do, especially with younger kids and teens, when they start this conversation, is first and foremost, validate their experience and let them know that you value them for bringing it up, right? So value and validate. If you do those first two things, before you even get into the content, they're going to bring more of their experience back to you. And that's the point, right? We want our families, we want our trusted adults, we want our inner circles to be the source of those trusted conversations. Um, because we as mental health providers usually have to take a reactive stance because the patient has held things in for too long and symptoms occur when people get to a point where pathology has occurred because things have gone on for too long. So if a child, if a teen approaches you and says, I have a question, I, I might not be feeling well, right? Or I might be depressed or what's anxiety or somebody in my class is doing this. The first thing and the best thing to do is say, you know, thank you so much for bringing this to me so that we could talk about it. That must be so hard for you, right? That, that is such a little hug for a kid and they will come back to you and do it again because what you're doing is saying, wow, you're so brave. And what we're really doing is focusing on the resilience uh, and the bravery that it takes to be a kid. It's very hard to live in this world right now and to even have to navigate how complex the mental health experience is for a kid. Secondly, then I think we just ask them, tell, just talk about it. I might not have the answers, but let's, let's just find the words for what's going on. And then if I'm not the right person, let's, let's together find the person to help you, or let's just try to get through it together. You can see the entire interview with Dr. Joseph Galasso and Dr. Carrie Ditzel on the WBGO Facebook page. The Institute of Music for Children is having a jazz night fundraiser on June 3rd. The music teachings and spirit of our guest here on the WBGO Journal. The amazing Victor Wooten joins us. Victor, great to see you. Hey, thank you so much, Douglas. Thanks for having me on. For those who might not be familiar with our featured guest, he's a five-time Grammy Award winner. He hit the worldwide scene in 1990 as a founding member of the supergroup Bela Fleck and the Flecktones and continues to blaze a musical trail with the band. Victor has also become widely known for his own Grammy-nominated solo recordings and tours, and now we'll be putting on this special fundraising concert for the Institute of Music for Children. How did you get involved in this effort? 
Um, yeah, great question. There's a longtime friend of mine. There's a musician that I pretty much grew up with in Virginia, Newport News, Virginia. And his name is Steve Pittman. And, you know, as we started to grow up, we all went on about our own lives. He moved away up north and I moved away a little bit west. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's in New Jersey. So Steve, um, periodically we'll call each other and have each other do favors for each other. And uh, we're very, very close. And uh, and so it's, it's because of him that I've met all the different people uh, with this institute and even met some of the kids in the past. And so that's how it came about for me, Douglas. You have four children of your own, so you know what it's like to be a dad and a husband and the importance of music in the life of children. It seems from very early on, I've talked about this many times, Victor, you see a just an, an infant in front of the television or by a radio and music, they all respond. What is it about music that you think just inspires kids at such an early age? Well, well, for one of the things, you don't have to understand it to get the full picture of it, right? It's not like a math formula that you look at on a board and you go, oh, that's beautiful. You know, you have to understand that formula to see the beauty in it. Most of the time, music goes deep. The vibrations, the literal vibrations of music uh, bounce off you, but they also seep into you like an ocean wave and, and you feel it. And the thing is about music is there's no wrong way to feel it. And so music is doesn't have to deal with age, doesn't have to deal with race or culture. It just speaks to everyone and kids definitely get it because they don't have a filter of how they're supposed to get it yet. They just feel it honestly. It's interesting that you mentioned the uh, the word vibration because as you play the bass, those vibes go right through your body, don't they? Yeah, the thing about the, the bass, the low instrument, it's like a subwoofer in a club. It's the instrument that physically makes you move even when you don't want to, right? The higher vibrations are important also. Those are the ones that, you know, you hear the melody, you feel the chords, you know, the emotion of the chords. The, the, the composer lets you know in a scary movie that something's about to happen by the chord that he plays. But when the low instruments play, it's like your body has to move. So parents are out there thinking, what instrument is should my kid be getting involved with? How do you make that decision, Victor? What I did with, with my kids, and I, I'm, I have four, as you say, they're older now, but I always made sure that there were instruments around the house that they could freely pick up and play. The instruments don't have to be good, right? Because we have to remember, our goal is not to play an instrument. Our goal is to play music. We use instruments to play the music, but it really doesn't matter what it is. Right. But I always made sure that there were instruments around that they could they had free will to pick up whenever they wanted. But I also, Douglas, made sure that there were instruments, my instruments that they had to ask because I wanted them to understand how to respect the instruments, that they're not just regular toys that you throw around. You need to respect them in the same way that kids learn words. They have the free will to say whatever word they want, but they know which ones not to say. And that takes self-control and will. And that's what we're really working on, right? So I made sure that there were uh, instruments for them to play. The other thing is that you expose children to music at an early age, right? You just expose them to it and then you pay attention and they will gravitate towards the instrument that speaks the most to them. 
We're also joined here on the WBGO Journal by Alicia Souter, who's the Executive Director of the Institute of Music for Children in Elizabeth. Great to see you again, Alicia. You too, Doug. Thanks for having us back and, and having Victor here. It's so exciting. It is exciting. And we're talking about the importance of music for children, of course. You have some summer camps coming up. You want to talk about that? Absolutely. We have a six-week summer camp for first to 12th graders, and it really is an immersion in the arts and giving kids an opportunity, just like Victor was saying, about the importance of exposure and to, to be able to find their way into their art. And so that's what we believe in. We believe that kids, it's not just that they may start thinking, I want to learn the guitar, but that may evolve to the piano, to the drums, to singing, to, so it's about exposure and, and, and participation. And that's what we get to do at the Institute. And uh, that's what our summer program allows students to do. They don't just take one class. They don't just take two or three. They rotate through eight different art forms um, over the course of the summer. And a lot of times after our summer program, students start to focus in on maybe an art form that they want to really study throughout the school year. So we, we love our program. It starts Wednesday, July 6th and runs through August 12th. And um, in addition to instrumental music, uh, we also do perform other performing arts, including a wide range of uh, dance. Uh, we do theater, drama, uh, film work, a podcast, electronic music production, even culinary arts. So it's an exciting time for all of us. And as you can tell, when you hear Alicia talk, she has passion just like Victor has for the music. But we all know that the Institute does things in a big way. And what better way than to have a five-time Grammy award-winning bassist be the headliner for your special fundraising concert. I know you have to be thrilled that Victor will be performing. Oh my goodness. We're so thrilled. And we are, um, we not only because of, of course, his, his mastery in this art form, but also his connection. You know, we, we know Victor because of one of our longtime teachers and an amazing advocate, Steve Pittman. And so, and then being able to have this connection with WBGO, it's all about connection. And that's what the Institute is about. So we're just thrilled that our relationships can help to bring forth more and more arts for kids. Uh, and that, that's, what, that's what our goal is, right? We want, we want to never turn a child away. We don't want money to be in the way of a child being able to not just experience, but, but really be able to participate fully in the arts. And we know that that arts learning and that arts world, that community that we get to build through the arts is what changes hearts and minds and allows us to express our full selves and allows us to connect with others. So many things in this world are creating boundaries and barriers between people, right? Between kids and kids and kids and adults and, and our own selves. And that's what the arts gets to do. So, you know, I, I love that Victor is such an incredible educator in the arts. It, it's not enough that he's like a master. It's like, then he goes around and, and really teaches about the beauty and power of the arts. And so we love having Victor with us for so many reasons, but maybe that one's my favorite of all is that he's a teacher always. And you mentioned the keyword master. He's having a master class for the students as well as part of this fundraiser, right, Victor? Yeah, yeah, that, that's the beauty is, it, I, I love to perform, but I love even more to interact 
with people of all ages and to get the get the kids when they're young and their minds and, and opinions are being shaped and this, just to allow them to experience music from the inside, not just the outside watching other great musicians, but to show that they have something to offer already in the same way they can speak with their 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 verbal mouth and their voice. They can also speak just as clearly with their instrument. Right. And I want to make sure that they don't just know how great I am. That's not my point. I want them to recognize who they are. And music is a great way to do that. So the students of the Institute of Music for Children not only are treated on a regular basis through all the programs with fabulous music and instruction, but especially on June 3rd at Enlo Recital Hall at King University, showtime is 8 o'clock, doors open at 7.30 for the incredible Victor Wooten. It is entitled The Music Teachings and Spirit of Victor Wooten, and you need to be there. Thanks to both. Alicia Souter, the Executive Director of the Institute of Music for Children, and Victor Wooten for joining us on the WBGO Journal. Thank you for having us, Douglas. Thanks, Doug. You can see my entire conversation with bassist Victor Wooten and the Institute of Music for Children's Alicia Souter on the WBGO Facebook page. The 75th Cannes Film Festival ends this weekend with the awarding of its golden palm, the Palme d'Or. It can be a fancy joint with its famous red carpet, but it's also a launch pad for films coming our way. Having started with Top Gun 2, Cannes effectively draws to a close with a big glittery out-of-competition screening of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, which played like an emergency room shock to the heart of a festival that slumbered with films that meant well. Our film critic, Harlan Jacobson, is on the scene. Elvis reflects Aussie director Baz Luhrmann's penchant for smashing an atomic pinata of exploding moments, sketching out here the life of young Presley in Tupelo, black gospel and blues, on to Memphis, B.B. King, Little Richard, Big Mama Thornton singing Hound Dog, Sun Records, and worldwide superstardom in the 1950s. The kid does moonshot hit movements, and the old world order saw moral collapse the way it did with jazz 30 years earlier. Only this time, Southern white Democrats wanted to lock up their women and children. Elvis, the film, conjures the storms around his infamous TV appearance, cooling off for two years in Germany in the army, finding Priscilla, returning to Hollywood, and finally going to slowly drug out at 42 in Vegas in a white jumpsuit that was a parody when he was swept aside by the tides. By the mid-60s, the young had forgotten about Elvis, and much of what Lerman does in two hours and 40 is Elvis 101. Lerman takes some liberties with history to explain just who Elvis was and to position him as an artistic rebel who fought the man to the end, just so the film can play to young audiences now, not just those who lived Elvis then. The first hurdle in doing Elvis had to be who are you going to call to do the king? Austin Butler, who had a small part in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, gives Lerman everything he asked for, albeit in a reduced package physically. Butler does the lost boy pout and the lightning striking his body gyrations that send the panties flying, though I confess I thought the panties didn't start raining down until I saw the Beatles in 1964. Lerman frames the story here narrated by the devil voiceover of Colonel Tom Parker, the promoter packager who built Presley into a colossus, then did whatever it took to hold on to him. Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup. In that moment, 
I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. to promote you, Mr. Presley. Are you ready to fly? I'm ready. Ready to fly. Tomorrow, all of America will be talking about Elvis Presley. Elvis intuits that he is bigger than Parker, but is a child in Lermanland. As the colonel, Hanks is saddled with doing a voiceover that links all the set pieces of Elvis's life and career. Hanks is buried under pounds of goop to give him a neck the size of a tree trunk and an indeterminate accent said to be Dutch because Parker was post-war stateless, without papers, living as a southern gentleman concert promoter when he stumbles over Presley like Bruce the Shark seeing a baby seal. The Aussie Lerman's best work, screen romances that started small and grew exponentially in size and scope, Strictly Ballroom in 1992, Romeo and Juliet in 96 with the baby-faced Leonardo DiCaprio wooing Claire Danes, and Moulin Rouge with Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor in 2001 were properly electrifying. But Australia in 2008 and Great Gatsby nine years ago left the distinct impression that Lerman was now relying on glitter pop extravaganza to get by. In Elvis, he needs a hit. Canis provided the launch pad, and my bet is that however over-the-top Lerman style, and that whatever the critical shortcomings, the film makes a billion dollars worldwide. It's Jaws as a rock opera that swallows the whale whole. I wasn't moved to tears, as the Elvis faithful undoubtedly will be, but what about you? Warner Brothers is betting on it, first by bringing the film to the world stage in Cannes, then to use stateside June 24th. And I'm Harlan Jacobson in Cannes for WBGO. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO 88.3 FM and WBGO.org.